some of you have been at the uh, series of presentations in the track that was on mineral balancing in the soil. And I know that uh, one of the books that Brother Whitmar mentioned was the one on the ideal soil. And some of you have asked about where to get that. We had some copies that we had on the book table, but uh, we didn't bring many copies. But if you filled out one of the sheets that I put in the back of the room there in, at the lodge where he was doing the presentations, we will send a copy of that book. Also, I have the book Hands-On Agronomy. We have a good supply of those for the people who are interested in getting that book by Neil Kinsey. That is the one that follows the Albrecht model of mineral balancing that he discussed quite extensively. And we also have microbe inoculants. There was discussion about improving the biology of the soil. And just as a very quick example of what this can do, the microbes in the soil can take nutrients that are unavailable to the plants otherwise and help break them down and make them available to the plants. It's like the microbes and the digestive system in a person. The soil is like the stomach. And these are microbe inoculants that both work for foliar applications as well as soil applications. And now on several different occasions uh, through a period of several years, we have been using microbe inoculants. We have not done a fully scientific lab-tested experiment, but we have seen significant results growing corn that usually is a high nitrogen requiring plant. In the past, we have had serious nitrogen deficiency if we didn't use some source of nitrogen. But using microbe inoculants with blackstrap molasses and a small amount of fish emulsion and no other nitrogen application whatever, we have had uh, corn that's grown 15, 16 feet tall, ears have filled out, and there has not been any sign of nitrogen deficiency. The nitrogen was coming mostly out of the air and being harvested some that was being used from breakdown of soil humus by the microbes. So microbe inoculants are very useful and can take the place of chemical dependency and fertilizers. There are several other things we have there that are available at the table on apple propagation. We have a couple packets available on apple culture and propagation and also one on on uh, mineral balancing in the soil. And one other thing I want to mention, we have had, even though this is the first agricultural conference by the Association for Adventist Agriculture, we have been, some of us have been involved in education and agriculture conferences through about the past seven years, seven or eight years in different locations, as Brother Bob Gregory was mentioning. And if you would like to experience, at least in a small degree, back at home, what you've experienced here through this weekend, you can get recordings of those meetings. Every one of those meetings has been like this, but on a somewhat smaller scale. And those of you who have been at past meetings can testify of that. And if you would like to get information that is not, has not been covered here on other areas of education, also in some of the presentations that I've given, I have much more extensive presentations just on the Madison School, just on Emmanuel Missionary College, just on the Avondale School. And you can get these presentations. We have sheets. I'll just have them on the table up here for those who are interested. Here are some of the topics covered in some of those previous meetings. True education and the end times. A personal testimony. And this is a testimony by Bob Gregory at one of the meetings telling a story. If you haven't heard it, it uh, will bring tears to your eyes. Uh, a man who was destined to end his life, and the Lord turned it around and gave him a ministry that's affecting hundreds or thousands of people now. I think you would be greatly benefited to hear that testimony. And here are just a few others. The dignity of knowing how to work. 
Lessons from model schools. Another one is homeschool or public school at home? Agriculture in evangelism. Agriculture in the three angels' messages. The Waldensian education. Agriculture and God's plan for the last days. Character development, their curriculum. Who is teaching our children? What kind of toys are suitable for children? So there's things on education and on agriculture, and as I mentioned, we'll have these up here at the front. You can order either sets of the whole conferences. We have them actually on the table. We have a few sets of each conference if you would be interested in getting them. So I want to go into the meeting this evening. This is where we're going to begin this evening, but I would like to begin with prayer, and I know that we already are almost 8 o'clock, is that right? And the meeting gets over 8.15, is that right? Is that what? So I'm going to have to cut out uh, probably a significant part of this uh, material. I have... I have uh, probably close to 100 slides, so I'm going to cut that down. I'm going to skip over some, so just bear with what I skip over. I'm going, there are two schools I would especially like to focus on this evening, but I'd like to have prayer before we start, so I invite you to join with me as we kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to meet here with thee again this evening. The Sabbath is past, but we want to cherish every blessing that we have gained through the Sabbath hours. We want to cherish the sense of thy presence. We want to have hearts that are softened and subdued. We pray that thou wilt break up the stony hearts, that thou wilt break up the fallow ground, and that the seed of truth will be planted in our hearts and will bear fruit in the lives of each one of us here and as we have opportunity to share with others when we go our ways that the influence can continue to spread not an influence that comes from us personally but the influence of thy spirit working through us and i pray that thou will guide in the things that we should endeavor to cover this evening just what will be most helpful what will help to show us how thou hast led and thy teaching in our past history, how it applies today, what bearing it has, help us to understand the relation of circumstances that change, and I pray that thou wilt help us in every way that thou dost see is needed. We want to commit our lives to thee, and we ask these things according to thy will, and in Jesus' name, amen. It is going to be a little hard not to run over, so uh, I hope we can work out all right. The, this is the second part of what I started yesterday evening. We looked at several experiences from our earlier his, history, particularly with Avondale College, with Emmanuel Missionary College, and some other incidents. But this evening, I'd like to look at another school this is a school that was developing in its beginning stages in 1896. This was a school that was going through an immense struggle in early, its early days to get started. Not only were there financial hurdles, as many of them had to deal with, and all the traditional needs of beginning a new educational institution that require lots of physical hard work, but there was the added factor of racial prejudice. What school am I talking about? How many of you have been to Oakwood College? Okay, a few hands here. I've been there also doing research on some of their background. And I could give you a testimony about the experience there. It was interesting, but I'll have to leave that for another testimony time. There were people who opposed efforts to educate black people. Not only 
were black people subjected to threats, harassment, and hatred, and even death, but white people who tried to aid and educate them were subjected to bitter hatred and exposed to physical harm as well. There are instances of some being injured and killed for their effort in behalf of the blacks who, as we know, up through the uh, 1860s particularly, had been greatly depressed by the action of slavery. What is now known as Oakwood University was begun on what had previously been a plantation that had kept many slaves used for labor. I thought this was quite an ironic background for the place where Oakwood College was established that was to be an institution to uplift, to educate, and to train in missionary endeavor for the three angels' messages, those who had been downtrodden by the very slavery that had existed on that soil. Although this is an agriculture presentation, there are a few interesting personal side notes that I will add as we go along. It was in 1896 that the initial phases of establishment took place with a program of farm development and building construction. I am indebted for a significant amount of information used in this presentation to a doctoral thesis written by a history professor at Oakwood College back in the early 1980s. The title of his work was, you may not be able to read it clearly, but it is Physical Work as an Integral Part of Education at Oakwood College in the Light of Ellen White's Ellen G. White's writings. Now, in this thesis, which is a pretty good-sized book, he starts out by establishing what are the guidelines given in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. He goes through establishing step-by-step step what is the what we oftentimes refer to as the blueprint plan for education and where does manual training, and of course that includes agriculture, where does that fit in? Then he goes through the historical development of Oakwood College. And he then finally concludes at the end, after looking through a lot of historical developments, not only of Oakwood, but of some other schools that followed similar programs, then he comes back to the question, how is Oakwood College doing on following the blueprint plan? And he surveyed the history from its very beginning all the way down to the 1980s when he writes this thesis. And he basically says it's not following the plan anymore. But he says that it could be readjusted, it could be redirected. And it would, might take some years to do that, but still, in the words of the Spirit of Prophecy, perhaps it's a, a prisoner of hope. Anyway, we want to look at some of that earlier development. On this former plantation... A man who had been a slave related later during the time of the slavery, uh, he had been a slave, but after that, he related that as he would travel by, he was on a neighboring plantation, but he would travel by sometimes early in the morning in the work that he was assigned to do, and he would hear there on that very location slaves who were being whipped early in the morning and crying out, Lord, have mercy, have mercy. This was part of a daily routine on some plantations where slaves regularly mixed their blood, sweat, and tears with the soil which they labored on. In some instances, it was not uncommon for them to be stripped and tied up to barn rafters for their whippings. Women slaves were not exempt from this treatment either. The very plantation where Oakwood was later situated was the home of a slave who escaped and fought a legal battle for his freedom based on the statement of the Declaration of Independence and the words of the United States Constitution that all men are created equal and are entitled to the pursuit of life and liberty. This case eventually ended up in the Supreme Court. And those of you who have studied that history are aware that the Supreme Court of the United States of America ruled that the African race were not entitled to freedom and that they were not to be considered as having the rights of citizens of the United States, but rather were to be treated as property 
of the white man anywhere in the nation where slavery existed as an institution permitted by individual states. Disagreement on this Supreme Court decision led to the great debates of Stephen Douglas, who supported that decision, and Abraham Lincoln, who didn't support that position. They were both contenders for the office of president of the United States. Eventually, Lincoln was to become president and to succeed, though at a fearful cost to himself and the nation, in abolishing the institution of slavery and emancipating the slaves. That's part of the history of Oakwood College, for those of you that didn't know. Oakwood Industrial School, as it was originally named, was formed initially for the purpose of educating and uplifting those of the black race who desired the benefits of a Christian education that would enable them to sustain themselves in a productive way and would give them an advantage in society. The early workers at Oakwood looked at Tuskegee as developed by Booker T. Washington and also the Hampton Institute where Washington had gained much of his education as models of what they desired to accomplish for the black people. I have found records indicating that there was considerable communication with Tuskegee and with Washington himself by the leaders of Oakwood in those earlier years. I have personal interest in Oakwood developments because there is some family history involved there from my, my family personally. My grandmother taught in this little building here called the Morning Star School that was there at Oakwood College in its early years. She taught there in the 1920s, and there she also met a man who came to teach and start the chemistry department. He's the man on the front right side here. His name was Roy Alfred Jorgensen. That was my grandfather. While they were there, they subsequently married and had a son who was born in 1927, and that son was my father. So my father was born at Oakwood College. By 1933, all white teachers were replaced with black faculty, so my grandparents moved to Fletcher, where they became part of Fletcher Academy. But back to Oakwood College. Agriculture was a vital part of the school's operation, providing food for the students and staff. In the early days, it was a matter of survival to be able to grow food to maintain the students and staff. One record describes during one period of the early times how the students worked in the various areas of construction for the buildings needed for the school and in the growing of the food to meet the needs of the school for 10 hours each day and then they had classes in the evening for two hours. This of course is a little overbalanced on the manual activity side. But as with some of the other schools, it was a necessity that students do most of the work in an institution that didn't charge much, or in many cases, they didn't charge any tuition, but provided an opportunity for education to a student willing to work in exchange for it. In this case, while there was a recognition of the value of manual training as a part of education and character development, it was also a necessity for the survival of the school and perhaps more work was done for that reason than strictly for the manual training side of education. The philosophy of education work and relation to the community is shown by the experience of one of the early principals of the school, Solon Jacobs. Suspicions and queries formed formed a chilling atmosphere about the surrounding farm community. Forming a chilling atmosphere about the surrounding farm community meant that Principal Richards and co-workers must strive to thaw the icy barricade. We we're talking about evangelistic influence in the community, and we don't have to deal with, in most communities, what they had to deal with in this situation because these were people coming from the north, primarily, down into the south where there was a strong resistance to people trying to help the black race. So they had to strive against this kind of resistance. Knowing this, Jacobs decided to make a friendly overture to a hostile neighbor by taking a saw for sharpening to the neighbor's son, a carpenter. So like the woman at the well and like Jesus, he asked for a service. 
in order to make a contact. While the son and Jacobs were in the shop talking, the old man, the father, came out, stood in the doorway, crowded by his tall physique, and he greeted Jacobs by sneering, another blank Yankee, come south to teach us southerners how to farm. Jacobs walked over to him, placed his hand on the father's shoulder, and said, Mr. A., I have just been wanting to get acquainted with you and wishing that I could make the best friend of you that I could possibly get in this country. Now in the north, I thought I knew how to farm. But when I come here and see your soil and see how differently you farm and your different tools, I am persuaded I don't know how to do it. And I want some friend who will advise me to go over that farm and show me how to plant, how to thin, and what to put in. I have just hoped I could find that friend in you, for I am not acquainted with another white man except two or three merchants. Needless to say, this prudent approach by Jacobs hit its mark and won for Oakwood a friend. Soon thereafter, the Oakwood neighbor visited the campus, evaluated the farm and the peculiarities of Alabama soil, and advised a method of cultivation. The neighbor's older son, John, who loved to experiment with new seeds, obliged Jacobs by saving some harvest seed for him. Driving past their farm one fall day, Jacobs asked the father if John had kept those seeds. Kept them, explained the father. He got them in a handbox, a bandbox. Anything you want, he puts in a bandbox and he stores it away in the house. Another instance of Superintendent Jacobs reaching out to create a friendlier atmosphere between the school and its off-campus observers is that of volunteering the summer of 1897 to help a hostile neighbor who suffered loss because of fire. Barns, mules, wagons, and harnesses, all of that was burned up. Knowing that the neighbor had 15 acres of corn with no chance of cultivating it himself, and that all the other neighbors were very busy working their own crops, Mr. Jacobs and his son Bertie, with several students, harnessed six mules, took six cultivators and, a wag and wagon over to the man's house. When he told the bereft neighbor they had come to cultivate his corn, the man, dumbfounded, stood looking at him and remarked at long last, Is that the kind of man you are? Yes, that's the kind of man I am. Why not? Well, said the neighbor, if that's the kind of man you are, I've got something to do. Stepping out of his door with a trembling voice, he continued, Mr. Jacobs, I've said some mighty hard things against you for starting that nigger school. Now I ask you to forgive me for all I've said. Why, well, I had forgiven you long ago, returned Jacobs. If not, I wouldn't have been over here. So out into the field, Jacobs and his helpers from Oakwood went as he charged them. Now, boys, if you have ever done an honest day's work, do one today. At the coming of noon, Jacobs directed the boys to fetch the dinner from the wagon. No, sir, declared the man who overheard Jacobs. My wife is getting dinner. We have something to eat at any rate, and you shall eat dinner at my house. By evening, fall cultivation of both farm and friend was complete. By evening fall, cultivation of both farm and friend was complete. The very next day found Jacobs and his group over at the farm, to the farm of a Negro neighbor named Bird Terry and helped him cultivate his wheat. Similar assistance was tendered still another neighbor whose wheat was spoiling due to frequent rains and no help to dry it out. How surprised and grateful he was one sunshiny day when several Oakwood students appeared and before nightfall, had his wheat safely stored in the barn. Approaching Jacobs with an offer for payment, the neighbor was told by the principal, you owe us nothing. I haven't time to do this for money. I have, I have all I can do. I have done it only to help you out. Stunned and speechless, best described the neighbor's response to Principal Jacobs' generosity. Weeks passed, and that very same neighbor brought his threshing machine to thresh the Oakwood farm. Mounting his machine to leave at the end of the job, he heard Jacobs call out, Hold on, I want to pay you. Well, said the neighbor, peering down from the machine, You'll never pay me nothing. I didn't have time to thrash for you for money. I had all I could do. I did it just for accommodations. <laughs> 
The reason I included that story, it was a little long, but the reason I included that was because I thought that really fit in with what we have been discussing here about the role of agriculture in having an evangelistic influence in our neighborhoods. And it shows that one of the purposes that was recognized even by the people back at that time was that developing the influence in their neighborhood was far more important even than sustaining themselves. So that is something I think that we can all benefit from. All right, I think we're back where we were. These are just some of the pictures of the farm program and its developments there at Oakwood College through some of these earlier years. A man by the name of C.J. Boyd came to Oakwood in 1907. And along with teaching assignments was also farm and garden supervisor. In 1910, he was asked to become principal. He accepted, but asked to take some time for study to gain some administrative skills. In the meanwhile, he traveled around soliciting donations and collecting what amounted to two boxcar loads of farm equipment, furniture, canning jars, cooking utensils, stoves, and many other supplies for the school. He also obtained a road grader and convinced the railroad company to help with freight expense to get all the equipment shipped to Huntsville. He also traveled to Hampton Institute and other educational institutions for black people. He especially spent quite a bit of time consulting with Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee Institute. He also spent considerable time with George Washington Carver, the famous researcher at Tuskegee who was studying and unlocking secrets of usefulness for the peanut and the sweet potato. Boyd was responsible for hiring the first black staff member who became superintendent of construction and oversaw the raising up of various buildings used on the campus. They also built food storage and processing buildings. That's the barn with some of their horsepower. Here's the campus cannery. One season, they canned 35,000 cans of peaches, 10,000 cans of tomatoes. They stored 2,000 bushels of potatoes, as well as large quantities of corn, sorghum, peas, beans, and peanuts. The abundance of vegetables supplied the needs of the school, and the surplus was sold in the Huntsville market. Then J.I. Beardsley took over the operation of Oakwood Manual Training School in 1917, with the intention of raising its status to a junior college. He also persuaded the General Conference to purchase an adjoining 618 acres. Now that'd be a lot to farm even with motorized equipment. They were using hand power and horse and mule power. So the General Conference bought the 618 adjoining acres and they added that to the school farm. Beardsley worked to increase the agricultural production even more. He aimed for 4,000 pounds production of sweet potatoes along with large quantities of corn, peas, beans, tomatoes, and other vegetables. He also introduced cotton some years. It was grown quite extensively. One of the aims of Beardsley was to produce all the things which were needed by the school and to purchase only those things which the school could not produce. Beardsley's objective was to make education practical for students who were to go out into the community and implement their learning. For example, courses in agriculture were required of all students. They were given plots of land where they would demonstrate what they had learned in the classroom. And so at Oakwood, many of them had their first contact with the soil. Not only did the students work in the soil, but they built wagons for campus use as well as for the community. Sundays were reserved for community work. For this, students were divided into groups and sent by pairs into pre-assigned areas to do missionary work. One visitor who came to Oakwood, man by the name of J.L. Shaw, described what he saw in 1921. None of the students were idle. He found each occupied in accomplishing some particular task. He found teachers working side by side with their students in the classrooms as well as in the industries. 
he observed that 60 acres were planted in corn, 49 in oats, 17 of wheat, 30 of vegetables, and 800 fruit trees. The sawmill was turning the hickory, oak, and chestnut into lumber. In its industrial program, he saw Oakwood a model for some other Seventh-day Adventist colleges. All this work was done by students and faculty. Probably not enough attention was being given to the academic part of development. Books were few. The school day began at, at 5.30 in the morning, and it ended at 9.30 in the evening. Many students worked eight hours each day, while others worked even more. In his annual report to the Board of Trustees in 1919, Beardsley said, in the 11th grade agriculture, we have completed the text as far as dairying and farm animals, covering the subjects of corn culture, wheat, oats, cotton, legumes, meadows, trees, and vegetables. In the 8th grade, we have finished the study of soil, seeds, vegetables, gardening, and care and use of tools. This semester, we have classes in dairying, agriculture, gardening, printing, and broom making for young men, giving all that is essential knowledge of each subject. J.A. Tucker, which you see on the screen here, the last of the white presidents, came in 1923. Along with him came a young lady, Mamie Jones, who helped care for his children. She also became a teacher for the children of staff members in the Morning Star School, and I mentioned her a little earlier there at Oakwood. Tucker began a vigorous program of, de of development in production and building. He gave regular reports in the school bulletins. In one instance, he described what was produced from a two-acre plot during one, a one-year period. A two-acre plot during a one-year period. Here's what he said. The plot was first planted in corn and yielded 20 bushels. Next, it was plowed and sown with wheat in the fall and produced 45 bushels in the spring. The same plot was next sown with Japanese clover, which produced 20 bushels of seed and 4 tons of hay. The total income from the two acres for the year was $240. Now, it doesn't sound like he was including the planting time of the corn, just counting from the time of harvest to the time of the uh, final harvest of the clover and uh, clover seed. But in that one-year period, he says that's what they harvested from that two-acre plot. Tucker also visited Berea College in Kentucky. He studied their work program and recommended that the board adopt a similar program for Oakwood. Yearly, the president gave detailed reports to the board of what was being done in the industries. For example, in 1927, 2,000 bushels of corn were produced, 200 tons of hay, 750 gallons of syrup, 1,000 bushels of sweet potatoes, and $2,000 worth of vegetables. The dairy was increased from 20 to 60 head of cattle and ranked second in the state in quality of milk produced. Students and teachers were still doing all the work necessary to build and operate the institution. The machine shop, garage, electric shop, plumbing, fan, dairy, gardening, and grounds furnished work for the young men while the young ladies were kept busy with domestic work in the laundry, print shop, store, and tailor shop. Now, a day or two ago, I think I mentioned that uh, in a research, actually it was yesterday evening, I think, in a research project, which I read from, do you remember that it said that back a uh, number of years ago, back in 1900, it took 147 man-hours to produce 100 bushels of corn. Now, I was calculating a little bit. Maybe you can do some quick calculating, too. If we assume that uh, now this is 1927, they're a little faster, they've got uh, better equipment to pull with their mules and horses and things like that. So let's say that they have to put 125 hours in for 100 bushels of corn. That means for 2,000 bushels, there's 2,500 man hours or labor hours put in. If 20 students were working on that, that means each of them would have to put in 125 hours 
125 hours and 12 weeks. The corn can usually be grown in uh, 90 to 120 days. So if we put the fullest length on there, 12 weeks, that'd be 10 and a half hours a week through that period for each one of those students. Now they're doing a lot of other things too. They're not just working on corn. But this gives you an idea of the percentage of time or the level of involvement that was taking place in growing these kind of numbers. No doubt, the leaders and teachers of Oakwood through these years were familiar with the fact that Ellen White had given very specific directions regarding the Oakwood School and its farm. Indeed, she had even taken a trip through the South, first visiting Graysville Academy, which later became Southern Missionary College, and also the Hillcrest School. How many of you here have heard of the Hillcrest School? Only a few. I want to talk about the Hillcrest School, and I know I'm already over time, but maybe we'll take a few minutes for that. But uh, she visited the Hillcrest School, which was sort of a satellite school spawned from Madison that was to be especially for young black people. And then she went on to Oakwood. She gives a brief description of her visit and what was happening at the Graysville School. And the Graysville School is what later became Southern Missionary College. Here's what she says. On Sunday... We were taken to see the different lines of work that are being carried on by our people in Graysville. We went over the school building and then we visited the 25-acre farm on the hill, which is largely planted with peaches. The young trees look thrifty. After looking at this, we went to see the 400-acre farm. It's not only 25 acres of mostly peaches, but they had 400 acres that they were farming which has recently been acquired by the conference and has been leased to the school. On this farm, we saw large fields of corn, broad pasture lands, and on the hill, 30 acres of strawberries. Imagine running a crew of students to take care of 30 acres of strawberries. You think you'd hear a little... <laughs> My back is hurting. <laughs> By 1916, they had, you want to know how many people were working on this kind of scale? Don't read the screen yet, that's for a little bit later. By 1916, they had 13 teachers, 9 college level students, and 48 high school level students. That's who's doing the work on this farm, as well as taking classes. So I am not sure how many staff and students were in the school 12 years earlier when Ellen White visited, but it was no doubt a smaller number farming that 425 acres and conducting academic classes as well. Now planting lots of food was not a new thing to Ellen White. In 1881, she described some of their planting activities in a letter to her son William. Now you can read the screen. Here's what she said. Father has excellent health. He has worked hard on the place here, put in more than one acre of strawberries, some raspberries, more than an acre of potatoes, several acres of corn, 50 hard maples, many peach trees, pear trees, and two long rows of pie plant. I'm not sure what that was. Rhubarb, okay. For rhubarb pie. So, as I say, planting a lot of food was not a new thing to James and Ellen White in their household. Then we read of several places in her accounts of visiting and special instruction given for the people at Oakwood. Here is part of what she says. I feel so grateful that we have this farm on which to carry on our schoolwork. I am so glad that it is land which will produce but it cannot be expected to produce fruit if it is left uncultivated. From this, we may learn a spiritual lesson. You see the spiritual connections often brought out here. It is my Father's good pleasure, Christ says to his disciples, that you bear much fruit. But you cannot bear much fruit unless you take out of your lives the weeds of evil and let the word of truth dwell in you richly that your lives 
may produce the fruits of righteousness and holiness. If you will do this, you will see in the kingdom of God the result of what you have learned on this school farm. Pull up the weeds and plant the seeds of truth. That's from volume 6 of the manuscript releases, page 213. Now, again, she wrote in another uh, page, I say again, I am so glad that we have this farm. One came to me and said, I think it is a mistake to keep that land. It is not half cultivated. I think that they might better turn it back to the conference. Remember, there was over 600 acres that had been bought by the conference and given them to use. And here at this particular point, they said it's not all being cultivated properly. That, right instruction, that night, instruction was given me regarding the matter. It was God's purpose that the school should be placed here. He saw that the workers here would not have to fight every inch of the ground as the workers in some places have had to do in order to establish the truth. The instruction was given me, never, never part with an acre of this land. It is to educate hundreds if those who come here as teachers will do their part, if they will take up their work in God's name, sending their petitions to heaven for light and grace and strength, success will attend their efforts. The teachers are to be kind and tender and at the same time very thorough in discipline. This is most essential. Then again she wrote, recently the suggestion has been made that the school at Huntsville is too large and perhaps it would be better to sell the property there and establish the school elsewhere. But in the night season, instruction was given me that this farm must not be sold. The Lord's money is invested in the Huntsville School Farm to provide a place for the education of colored students. The General Conference gave this land to the Southern work, and the Lord has shown me what this school may become and what those may become who go there for instruction. If his plans are followed, who go there for instruction, if his plans are followed, there is need at the Huntsville School of a change in faculty. There is need of money and of sound, intelligent generalship that things may, might, may be well kept up and that the school may give evidence that Seventh-day Adventists mean to make a success of whatever they undertake. Wise plans are to be laid for the cultivation of the land. The students are to be given a practical education in agriculture. This education will be of inestimable value to them in their future work. Thorough work is to be done in cultivating the land, and from this, the students are to learn. Now notice here what the lesson is they're to be learning from doing thorough work in cultivating the land. From this, the students are to learn how necessary it is to do thorough work in cultivating the garden of the heart. Now, through the years, there was a great deal of emphasis and effort in developing work skills and in building up the institution in a self-sustaining way. Many felt that the academic development was getting the short end of the attention, and many conditions conspired to bring about a major change in the administration and the goals and direction of Oakwood for the future. A growing number of the black young people who were seeking what was known as higher education such as was offered in secular schools and universities attended by white people. Several student strikes over grievances and sensitive issues eventually resulted in Tucker being replaced by the first black president, James L. Moran, and by a change of faculty and staff to an all-black teaching staff. Some of the issues being pressed by students included less working hours and more academic studies. While agriculture and industries continued to be maintained at some level, after a period of time, they were receiving less and less emphasis in the overall program as they had received in former years. Here in 1936, some of the records tell us that for the help of the institution and the students, the school maintains and operates a line of industries. More than 200 acres of land is cultivated in farm and garden, providing for school consumption such things as can be grown in our latitude and furnishing employment for students who desire to work part of their way through school. 
Notice the emphasis here part of the way. The school operates its own blacksmith shop, printing office, sawmill, cannery, apiary, that's where they keep bees, laundry, and a sanitarium. The work in these departments is carried on in an educational way. In his research thesis addressing the question of whether, Black, uh, whether Oakwood College was following the blueprint for tree education, Oakwood history professor Clarence Barnes notes that this decline in self-support was paralleled by a significant rise in the student aid. Some 97% of Oakwood students were on one type of aid or another during the school years of 1970 to 1977. So you can see how vastly things changed through those years following this period of time into the 1930s. By the time it got to the 1970s, things had switched from students being able to work their way through school to students depending largely on aid. These are just a few pictures of some of the activities there during some of those years. And here we have a picture of the campus. This is from about the year 1995. You can see a lot of the land that was around the campus that had been used as farmland. Presently, back on the upper left-hand side, you can see two silos by the barn. I think one of those silos is still left, but everything else is gone. I think one of those silos is left as kind of a, an icon or, or a, a historical mark for what used to be. Now, I'm going to skip through here the, uh, some of the history of Pacific Union College, but you can see at a quick glance some of the pictures of their early developments. And I'm going to skip through the experiences at Fletcher Academy and some very interesting information there. But I will show this picture here. This is from about the 1970s. I know it's blurry on the screen, but you can obviously see that down here in the lower large right-hand lower corner, there's a lot of field area. The building over on the left side was the boys' dormitory in 1970. Now, I went to school there for two years, 1969 to 71, and I was in the boys' dormitory. I worked on the farm there for a major part of that time, and there in this area that is uh, field, obviously field area, I could look out the dorm windows and see the areas where we, who were working on the farm, were growing cabbage, tomatoes, peppers, potatoes, and things like that in what uh, farmers call bottom land. It was rich soil that uh, was very productive. And the next picture shows you the way it looks today. What do you see here? On that same field, there's now an oval and there are uh, poles with bright lights in a football field. That's Fletcher Academy. There's no farm program there anymore today. They had acres and acres of apple trees when I was there. All those apple trees are gone. We, we, uh, I learned how to prune apple trees. We picked apples and uh, did many things there. Grew sweet potatoes and other things that were used in the uh, sanitarium kitchen and in the cafeteria. But uh, all of that's a thing of the past now at Fletcher Academy. There were three model schools that Ellen White makes reference to in her writings. There are others where she talks about what they should be, but three she especially identified as being model schools during a certain period of time. The Avondale School, starting in 1896, she said this is a model, this is a representation of what we should be doing in our schools. And then she came back to America in 1901. I told some of that story yesterday evening, I think. And Emanuel Missionary College then, the uh, continuation of what had been Battle Creek College when it was relocated in southwestern Michigan. That became what she identified as an example of what we should be doing in our schools for four years. The interesting thing is that when Sutherland left and went down to start the Madison School, she, did, she doesn't say anything anymore about it being a model school. And I looked in some of the board records, the minutes, board minutes of things that took place during the time Sutherland was there and after he left, 
And just within months, some of the major features that had been earmarks of his program through those four years were changed to harmonize more with traditional views of what uh, should be done in educational institutions. The agricultural program was still continued on uh, strongly, but many of the things that he had instituted in the curriculum and program were changed just within months of the time he left. Ellen White didn't make any more statements about it being an example or a model school, but what he started doing in Madison School right after that, starting in 1904, she pointed to that as being the model of education. And four years later, in 1908, she described that the Madison School had done more than any other institution in America to show what true education was. She made some other similar statements as well. She said, if all of our young people were getting the kind of education that was begin being given at the Madison School, this was in 1908, she said, there would be a great work done in spreading the message and the work would be finished soon and Christ would come. Now here's what the Madison School looked like in 1904. In this building, they ate, they had classes, they slept, and they went out and did their work. Here was the building that Sutherland had left when he left Battle Creek and came to start the Madison School. There was another building besides this one, and that was this building. And they ended up calling this Probation Hall because... Many of the people that came to be staff or to teach there, they would have them stay here in this building. This had been a carriage house and a place where chickens were kept. They cleaned it out, fixed it up, and uh, the staff stayed in this building, new staff particularly, and if they could handle that, they figured they're good material for the Madison School. So I'm not going to go through a lot of the um, things relating to the Madison School because of a lack of time, but you can see some of the pictures there of the work they did at the Madison School. There are presentations in these order forms from previous years' uh, education conferences that cover the Madison School in detail. Now, I want to just close with a description here of a school that Ellen White visited that I mentioned earlier. This was the Hillcrest School. The Hillcrest School was started not far from the Madison School, and it was to be a school like the Madison School, but to train young black people to do mission work and to be teachers, like the Madison School was designed to do. And Ellen White visited the Hillcrest School. She mentions here in this slide, during our visit to Nashville, I visited the Hillcrest School farm where Brethren Staines and Brawlier are laboring to establish a training school. Now, Brawlier, Floyd Brawlier, was actually one of the early people in Adventism who became widely known for his agricultural experience and expertise. He wrote a book called The Southern Gardener, I think. I have a copy of the book, anyway, up in the room where I'm staying now. And he wrote that book. He married... E.A. Sutherland's sister, so he was actually a brother-in-law of Sutherland. He wrote several other books, too, one called Elo the Eagle and other stories. He loved studying nature, and he studied the lives, sometimes for a number of years. He followed the experiences and lives of certain animals, and then he wrote stories about life biographies of some of these animals, wild animals. But uh, he was involved in starting this school. The farm, she goes on to say, has 93 acres, and it's about six miles from Nashville. The location is excellent. Here the students can be trained to erect buildings and to cultivate the land as a part of their education. At the same time, they can be given instruction in Bible knowledge and be fitted by general study for why, of wisely selected books to know how to do the work to which they are called. William White also visited the school, and I'm going to skip this slide here where Ellen White talks a little bit more about it, but uh, I want to tell you a little bit of what William White says in his report. This was in 1911 that he wrote. He says, when I first saw the place in January of 1908, there were two buildings on top of the hill, an old barn, 
This is a picture of the old barn tumbling to pieces and a small but well-built brick house of two large rooms, a veranda, and also an outside kitchen. So how many buildings were on the place? When he first visited, and they were already starting the school there, these two buildings, this old barn and a well-built brick house. Sixteen months later, how long is that? That's a year and four months. Now what can you do in 16 months? with, with a, a few, two or three teachers and a handful of students. 16 months later, on our way to the general conference, we visited this school again and found that they had built a substantial barn, two cottages for students, and a five-room cottage each for Brethren Staines and Brawyer. The classwork was well begun with 12 students. They planted orchards and vineyards and much small fruit. After two summers had passed, it was encouraging to observe the developments of the work. There were 15 students doing regular classwork. To accommodate these, two more cottages had been built. The class recitations were conducted in the large rooms of the brick house. The orchard showed fine growth and gave promise of fruit in a few years. In it were... 500 peach and apple trees, 40 pear, 40 plum, and 30 Japanese persimmon trees, 40 pecan, 30 English walnut, 30 chestnut, besides shades and ornamental trees. There were also 350 grapevines, 1,500 blackberries, 2,500 raspberry, 5,000 strawberries, 6,000 asparagus, and 100 rhubarb plants. 16 students and several teachers. The crops on the farm for 1910 were excellent. There were 15 acres of oats, yielding over 500 bushels, 16 acres in meadow, 5 acres in alfalfa, 49 acres in corn, 6 acres of sorghum and peas, 2 acres of Irish potatoes, about 2.5 acres of sweet potatoes besides sweet corn, pumpkins, melons, tomatoes, and other garden stuff. It is the conviction of the teachers in this school that self-support will be attained more nearly through the raising as far as possible of all that will be needed by the school in the way of foodstuffs than by the raising of crops to sell. Well, it sounds like they probably should have had enough, doesn't it? You know, when I read some of these accounts of what they were doing back in those years, I'm starting to feel that I must be pretty lazy and don't know how to work very much. <laughs> I would... I would be interested to be a part of a school like that for a year and see how things were done. But I'd like to finish up by summarizing very briefly six points that I have found from doing this research. And I've skipped a lot of things that uh, would have filled out more details, but I just want to give you this summary. First of all, the farm is a place for character training and expansion of the mind and spirit in a way that books and classrooms can never approach to. The farm is a lesson book on God's plan for human soul, soul culture and also a demonstration of God's methods of agriculture in contrast with the common methods which focus on exploitation of the earth. Number three, the school farm is among the best environment and influences for the spiritual development of teachers and students. It can even be more influential than the Bible class. The farm is a place where there can be a different dynamic of influence and friendship between students and teachers, parents and children, minister and church members. I skipped over some passages if I had, had, had the time to read them. They talked about how the minister should go and spend time in the field with the students. It will influence his ministry with them. The farm is a place where there can be a different dynamic of influence and friendship between... Oh, I read that one, didn't I? For sanitariums and health centers, therapy and treatment that includes outdoor work in gardens and groves will prove very beneficial to patients. These are all things that are brought out in the councils and instructions regarding the place of agriculture in our missionary work, in our education, in the influence of our homes as well. Now, I read 
in the Bible that there's only going to be one city in the new earth. Have you noticed that? Just one city. All the rest of the earth will be what? A farm, that's right. A school farm. And this statement here tells us, if we can only gain the inheritance among the sanctified and have a portion to us in the heavenly Canaan, a part of Abraham's farm, we will be satisfied. Shall we not enjoy it all the more for being pilgrims and strangers here? I want to invite you to kneel with me as we close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank thee for thy grace that has enabled each of these dear friends here, these brothers and sisters, to sit patiently while we have spent this time going through this final presentation on the involvement of agriculture in the history of Adventism. And I pray that this will inspire us with a clearer understanding of the way that thou hast planned for us to cultivate not only the outward soil in the garden, but the garden of the heart, to truly be plants in thy great garden and to be an influence through eternity for those around us. I pray that thou wilt go with us as we go our ways this evening, that thou wilt bless our rest, that thou wilt prepare us for a new week and a new day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.